The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter and the 10th verse. The 10th verse in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. But it will be good for us and indeed essential that we should also bear in mind the previous verse, the ninth verse, for obviously these two verses go together. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. In other words, we can continue our consideration of this most important series of paragraphs in this 17th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's important, I say, because we have here in such a short space and compass the essence of the message of the whole Bible. The message of all these various prophets whose writings are recorded in the Old Testament is virtually the same message. It is God's controversy with his people, the children of Israel. But here and there in these various prophetic writings, we come across passages such as this, in which we are led at once to the very heart and center of the entire message. Now, uh, there is no question at all, but that one of the great functions of the Old Testament is just this. It is to give us an illustration of what God has to say to mankind. The children of Israel are a great object lesson standing here before us in the scripture. God raised them up in order that he might do certain things in them and through them. And this is undoubtedly one of the things which God does with them. He addresses a message to the whole of mankind. You see, the story is something like this, isn't it? Here are people brought into being by God in a miraculous manner. Not a nation like every other nation. But God took one man, Abram, and turned him into a nation. He made a nation and a people for himself. And he showered his blessings upon them. But he spoke to them. And he made it very clear to them at the very beginning that there were two great possibilities ahead of them. If they walked in his ways, if they kept his commandments, he would smile upon them and bless them. But he made it equally plain and clear that if they forsook his ways, if they followed their own ways or the ways of other nations, if they turned their backs upon him and gave themselves to other gods and to idols, well then, he would punish them. Cursing, he would curse them. God made that abundantly clear to them at the beginning. He gave them a law. He accompanied it by promises and by threats. He repeated it many times. The whole thing was put so plainly before them that you would have thought that no people could possibly have misunderstood. And yet we remember that the story of these people is this, that they found themselves eventually conquered by an enemy, with their great city of God, the city of Jerusalem, reduced to a mass of rubble and of ruins, their great temple flattened to the ground, and they themselves carried away as slaves to a foreign land, there having to work for other people. This great and mighty nation that had been perhaps the greatest nation in the world in a sense, there she is humbled and debased and disgraced. Now, oh, that's the story. And the great question that arises is, well, how did that ever happen to them? How did such a thing ever come to pass? 
What we have in this paragraph, in this chapter, is an answer to that question. And I say that we are interested in it, not because we are animated by some sort of antiquarian interest in the history of the children of Israel. I'm calling your attention to it and adverting to it because, I say, God is speaking to us here. To everybody in this meeting at this moment who is down, who is miserable, who is defeated, who is unhappy. God is speaking to the whole world of men with the world as it is in its present position and predicament. It's the same message precisely. Now I say, therefore, the great question that arises is, what is the matter? Why did the children of Israel go wrong? Why did things go wrong with them? Why is it that things have gone wrong with all of us? Why are things so patently and obviously wrong in the world this evening? Well, now, the answer in general is this. It is all due to what the Bible calls sin. This devastating thing that has entered in. This thing that produces the kind of story that you have in the case of the children of Israel. You see, I put that question to you. With a nation like this, which had been offered and promised so much and which had received so much, how did it ever become possible for them to land there in captivity and to be slaves? Well, there's only one answer. That is exactly the effect that sin produces upon the human race. It's the most devastating thing conceivable. What does it do to men? Well, in that previous verse, the ninth verse, we saw last Sunday night, one of the things it does, it has a most terrible effect upon our hearts. And there, you remember, we mean by the heart, not merely the seat of the emotions, but we mean the center of men's personality. We saw that the real trouble with men is that he's got inside him a deceitful nature. The heart is deceitful above all things. There are many things that are twisted and perverted in this world, but there is nothing which is as twisted and perverted as the human heart, as man's nature, as the result of sin. But it's not only deceitful, it's desperately wicked. And uh, it is so wicked and so deceitful that rarely man himself can never do anything about it, because the whole time he's trying to, he's still being deceived. That's one of the things that sin does to mankind. It has introduced this awful principle of contradiction and deceitfulness and wickedness, which is entirely beyond men's own understanding. But alas, it doesn't stop at that. Sin does something else to men. And you know, this next thing is even more important and more serious than the first thing. Because that first thing, in a sense, leads to this second one. And this second one is, of all things, the most devastating of all. What does it do? Well, we are given the answer in this tenth verse that we are going to look at tonight. Sin darkens our minds, it darkens our understanding about the most vital thing of all in this life and in this world, which is our knowledge of God. Now, sin is almost endless in its effects upon men. And perhaps it is foolish to compare them and to contrast them and to try to say that one is worse than others, but surely we are entitled to say this, we must say this. That of all the things that sin has done to men, the most serious of all is that it has cut him off from God. Sin leads to this awful twisting and perverting, this deceitfulness, this terrible wickedness, that we saw last Sunday. Yes, sin leads to lust. It leads to passion. It leads to envy. 
It leads to everything that makes life ugly and foul and unpleasant. All the horrors that can be seen in this world tonight. Sin is the thing that leads to them all. It leads, therefore, to terrible misery. It leads to a sense of frustration and futility. It leads to every form of unhappiness. And, of course, we're all concerned about those things. And there's nothing wrong in our being concerned about all those things, on condition that we realize that something is altogether much more important than all those things. Now, take it like this. Go back to the beginning of the human race. Go back uh, to the story it is, as it's given there in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, there, there you've got it all. There is man made and created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. He was in paradise. Well, that's marvelous. You see, he just had to eat the fruit. He didn't have to work. He just gathered the fruit. It was a wonderful life. Ah, yes, but the greatest thing of all about the life in paradise was not simply that men didn't have to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. That's good, but here is the best thing of all. He was in fellowship and communion with God. God came down into the garden and he spoke to men. God came down and had converse with men. Men was God's companion. He walked with God. He talked with God. He lived with God. He was in a condition of intimacy with God. The Lord God came down and spoke and men spoke. He was face to face with God and in correspondence with God. Then in comes sin. Well, we know all about its devastating effects. We know that how men was turned out. We know how thorns and briars began to grow and men began that fight against thorns and briars which is still waging. Weeds and all these things began to emerge. Nature became red in tooth and claw. Diseases and pestilences came in. Murder came in. And all the rest of it all came in and it's terrible. But that's not the greatest tragedy. The most terrible thing that happened to men as the result of that sin and that fall was that he lost his contact with God. He became a stranger to God. The Apostle Paul describes the condition in the epistle to the Ephesians in the second chapter in this way, without God in the world, the highest thing of all he lost. He became estranged from God. And that is something that has continued ever since. Now then, the prophet Jeremiah concentrates on that in this verse that we are looking at together tonight. And I want to call your attention to this, and God grant that I may have strength and power to do so. My friends, I'm going to speak to you tonight about something that you'll remember in eternity. Does that sound like boasting? I don't care who's speaking anywhere in the world tonight, whoever he is, however great, however gifted, intellectually or oratorically, there is no one speaking on a more vital subject than this tonight. This is, of all questions, the greatest and the most important. What is the matter with men? Well, here's the answer. Men's central trouble is his failure to realize the truth about God and about his relationship to God. That's where this deceitfulness of sin comes in, you see. Man deceives himself, he deceives others, yes, and he's deceived about God. I, the Lord. But man forgets the Lord. That was the whole trouble with the children of Israel. If the children of Israel had not forgotten the Lord God Almighty, they would never have found themselves in the captivity of Babylon. Never. There is only one explanation of all the calamities that overwhelmed them, and it is that they forgot the Lord. And there is no question that the central trouble in the world this evening just comes to that and to that alone. 
Mankind forgets God. It's something of which we are all guilty. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it? But when you look on objectively, but it's a fact, isn't it? You and I have actually been guilty and are still guilty of forgetting God. Hours can pass and we don't think of him. Weeks can pass, perhaps, we don't think of him at all. Months, years, and God is not thought of at all. He's not in all our thinking. There are those indeed who go so far as to try to say there is no God. They try to explain him away. They were to be had, you know, centuries ago. The psalmist says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. There's nothing modern in saying there's no God. The fool was saying that before the Lord Jesus Christ ever came into this world. That's about the oldest and the stalest news you can ever give. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They try to explain everything apart from God. They try to explain things in terms of nature. They'll even defy force in order to try to get rid of God. You see how pathetic sin makes us. Men spell force today with a capital F. They spell energy with a capital E. They don't believe in God, but they'll defy force and energy. Anything to get rid of God. Now I say that that was the central tragedy of the children of Israel. Look at these foolish people. Ready to worship the gods of the nations in, with whom they came in contact. Look at these people of all people making gods out of wood and stone and precious metals, and bowing down and worship. These people, why do I say these people? Well, for this reason. If ever a people had no excuse for not believing in God, it was the children of Israel. Their whole story is a proof of the being of God. As I've reminded you, they had come into being because of the action of God. You can't explain their origin you can't explain their history in any other way whatsoever. They've been made and produced and sustained by God. They're a miracle nation made out of that one man, Abram. And go back and read their story. You remember how they went down to Egypt because of the famine. And there they became slaves in Egypt. And there they would have been destroyed if it were not that God had intervened on their behalf and had manifested his power and his glory on their behalf. God, the Lord, had revealed himself on their behalf and in their presence. Think of the ten plagues that were enacted before their very eyes. That's a part of their story. And then the crossing of the Red Sea. The pillar, the cloud, and the fire. The way they destroyed their enemies who are much mightier than they were. Why? Well, the Lord was with them. The way they crossed the Jordan, the way Jericho was conquered, simply by marching round it and blowing trumpet blasts, down fall the walls. That's the God they're concerned with. That's the God who's made them and who's led them and sustained them. And yet the foolish people have forgotten Him. They've forgotten God. That's one of the things that sin does to us. Oh, yes, you see, the author of that 50th Psalm, he's got the same idea, hasn't he? God addresses the people through that man in exactly the same way as he addresses the children of Israel at this point through the prophet Jeremiah. What have people forgotten? Well, they've forgotten the Lord. They've forgotten God. And we're all of us without any excuse at all. Look at his marks. Look at his fingerprints. Look at these flowers in front of me at this moment. Can you explain those without God? Look at the sunshine. Look at the seasons. Look at the order, the arrangement, the design. Oh, can't you see him there? God has not left himself without witness, says the Apostle Paul. The seasons proclaim him. The whole of creation 
proclaims God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun coming out like a bridegroom out of his chamber this morning was proclaiming God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Lord. Don't you hear him in the thunder? Don't you see him in the lightning? Can't you see his effect and his influence in the hurricane and in the storm? God, the maker and the controller of the ends of the earth, the Almighty who is over all, the Lord. And yet you and I, because of sin and its terrible effect upon us, and live days and weeks and months and years, as I've said, in this world and not even give him a thought? Do you know that this almighty being is in the heavens at this moment and looking down upon us, the children of men? Isn't it almost inconceivable that we are not aware of it and that we are not constantly living in the light of such knowledge? It's a fact, my friends. The whole world proclaims it. The Lord Jesus Christ came to proclaim it. The Bible proclaims it. This is the message. God over all, the maker and the creator, the sustainer and the artificer of everything, the Lord God Almighty, everlasting and eternal in all his attributes and in his eternal power. The Lord. But man forgets the Lord. Ah, yes, he not only forgets the fact of the Lord and the being and the greatness of the Lord, he forgets a second thing. He forgets that God is his judge and that he will have to appear before him. My dear friends, you don't think that I'm fool enough to choose a text like this, do you? I can't imagine a man choosing a text like this just to please himself. I haven't chosen this text. I haven't written this. It isn't what I think. I'm expounding this paragraph, and I've got to be honest, and here it is in front of me. I'm told, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. But man forgets that God is the judge, the judge eternal, and that every one of us will have to appear before him. We forget it in practice, don't we? We ignore it. Do you know, if only every man and woman in this world lived every second of every minute of every hour of every day in the conscious realization of the fact that we must all stand before God, the world would become paradise again. There's no question about it. But men don't realize this. Indeed, even when they're told it and when they're reminded of it, they won't believe it. The idea of judgment is not popular. It's hated. It's always been hated, of course. They try to argue today in terms of philosophy and in terms of God's love that this whole conception of God as a righteous judge is something which is a contradiction of God's love and of God's mercy and of God's compassion. They take it out of the Bible. They say it isn't true. They say it's inconceivable that an almighty person could possibly do such a thing. You're familiar with the argument, aren't you? Men today do not believe in God as judge. They don't believe in the wrath of God. Well, what is my reply to them? Well, the only reply I've got to make is this. That I know nothing about God except what I find in this book. And I'll go further. Nobody else knows anything about God either except what is found in this book. Because a man by searching cannot find out God. He can try to, and they have tried to. I've been dealing with that the last two Sunday mornings in going through the epistle to the Ephesians. The apostle Paul puts it in one phrase. 
The world by wisdom knew not God. The greatest minds, the greatest philosophers have been trying to arrive at God and at a knowledge of God and they admit honestly they can't get there. We know nothing about God except what God has revealed concerning himself and it's in this book. And what do I find? Well, I find this as clear as I find anything else. That God is the judge eternal. You had it there in that 50th Psalm which I read at the beginning. You've got it in the account of the flood. You've got it constantly running through your Old Testament. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's everywhere. The law is an announcement of judgment. God says, I'm going to judge by this standard. That's why he gave it. He revealed his holy nature. Oh, yes, but you say, oh, that's Old Testament. And I no longer believe in the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament man. Well, very well, be careful what you're saying. If you want to say you're a Christian and that you only take the words of Christ, be careful. He believed the Old Testament, every bit of it. He talks about Moses and the prophets and he exhorts people to listen to them. But listen to his own words directly and what you find, well, you find that he taught the judgment of God as clearly and as explicitly as anybody else. His forerunner, John the Baptist, appeared before the people and this was his message. Flee from the wrath to come. Certain Pharisees and doctors of the law came to him and John looked at them and said, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And the Lord Jesus Christ taught exactly the same thing. My dear friends, it's the Son of God, the incarnation of love, who has spoken the three parables that you find in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of that final judgment of the nations. It's, they're his words. It's he who's pronounced woes upon the Pharisees. This is not man. It's the Son of God. He preaches that men should flee from the wrath to come and to save themselves from this untoward generation. Indeed, he is proclaiming judgment when he says that he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's because of judgment he has come, so he preaches it negatively and positively. And you find exactly the same thing as you go on in your New Testament. What has, John, what has Peter preached on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem? It's the same message. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Listen to the Apostle Paul. God hath appointed a day in which he shall judge the whole world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given notice in that he hath raised him from the dead. You glory in the resurrection, do you? Well, this is what the resurrection announces, that Christ is going to judge the whole world in righteousness. It's God giving preliminary notice of this. Read the Apostle Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians in the first chapter and the ninth verse. And he says that the news about these Thessalonian converts had gone everywhere, how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to await for his Son from heaven, even Jesus, who saved us from the wrath to come. My dear friend, I wouldn't invent such a doctrine. It alarms me. It's such a tremendous statement. But here it is. It is appointed unto men once to die and after death. The judgment. That's what makes preaching such a solemn and such a terrible thing. And that's why I can never understand laughter and joking in a preaching service. We're every one of us moving on every moment and second we're alive in this world in the direction of that judgment of standing before this holy God. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. 
Mankind forgets that. And then the last thing that it forgets is this. It forgets, or if you prefer it, it doesn't realize that it cannot deceive God. The human heart is desperately wicked and the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yes, so much so that as we look at it, we say, who can know it? I think I demonstrated to you last Sunday night that no man knows anybody else. And that no man knows himself. It's idle to tell me with the philosophers, know thyself. I cannot know myself. I'm much too fond of myself to know myself. And so are you. You can't know yourself as long as you're shielding yourself. As long as you're defending yourself, as long as there's a power within you that is always doing it and rationalizing your sins, you can't know yourself. Who can know it? Nobody. But there is one who does know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. He is not deceived and he cannot be deceived. But man doesn't realize that. Did you notice that extraordinary expression used in the 50th Psalm in the 21st verse? You've done these things, says the psalmist to these sinners. You've done these things, says God. And I was silent. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Ah, said the sinner, this is good. I'd been taught to believe when I was a child, says the sinner, that God was almighty and eternal and that God was the judge and that God would punish sin. I was told that in Sunday school when I was a boy and I believed it, of course. I didn't know any better then. But you know, says this man, I began to grow up. And one day I decided I'd do something that I'd always been told I mustn't do, that God would punish me if I did it. But I did it. I liked it. I wanted to do it. And I did it. And you know, he said, nothing at all happened. Nothing at all happened. So much for your God. There is no God. Can't be. It's a denial and a contradiction. Thou didst this thing, and I was silent. And thou thoughtest that I was just such another altogether as thyself. So men thinks that as he deceives others and as he deceives himself that he can deceive God. Now I'm not romancing, alas, I wish I were. But I'm not romancing. I've thought many a time that I could fool God. And you've thought so and the world is thinking so tonight. How do we do it? Well, we, we, we do it like this, don't we? We rather persuade ourselves that after all, God doesn't see everything. We thought at first that he did, but now we discover that he doesn't. That's one way in which we do it. Another way is this, we think, that God will be perfectly satisfied as long as we pay lip service to him. Now, I suppose that of all their errors, that was the greatest error of the children of Israel. Again, it's exposed by Jeremiah. It was exposed in that 50th Psalm. They did it like this. They'd been guilty of sin, and they paid no attention to it. Then something went wrong. Perhaps there was somebody taken ill in the family, or there was a war or something like that, and then they began to feel a little bit unhappy. Their conscience began to work. And they said, well, now, of course, uh, yes, we did sin. We sinned against God. What shall we do about it? Oh, they said, it's all right. We'll take God a burnt offering. We'll take God a bullock, or we'll take a bird as a burnt offering and a sacrifice. And there we'll offer it, and God will be perfectly satisfied. Oh, everything's all right. You remember the reply to that, don't you? I'm not interested in your bulls, says God. The whole world is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. 
If I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you, and I wouldn't eat anything that you bring to me in that way, thinking you can buy me off. The children of Israel had persuaded themselves that they were fooling God with their burnt offerings and sacrifices. But God said back to them, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Ah, yes, you know, we're still doing it, aren't we? Yes, we think if we give a subscription to a good cause that God is somehow placated. We think that if we do a little bit of good here and there that it compensates for the evil that we've done. We balance it up, don't we? Profit and loss account. And how expert we all are at it. We're all guilty of this. We are balancing. We hide that thing. Oh, that doesn't matter. Look at the good I'm doing. This thing is kept silent. I'm doing good work, and the whole time there's something wrong in my heart. Ah, but I say, all this is going to compensate. And we think that because we are not looking at it, that God doesn't see it. But another psalmist has answered again in the 68th Psalm, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You can go to God in prayer and you can pray most eloquently. But if you're harboring a sin or something you're not prepared to give up, you might as well stand up and go for a walk. Your prayer is useless. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's not deceived. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. We sometimes think again that as long as we tell God we are sorry, that he'll be satisfied. We put remorse in the place of repentance and we think that it works with God, don't we? You know the difference, don't you? Remorse is simply a man suffering from the consequences of his sin and anxious to be delivered from the consequences, he rarely hasn't faced the sin. The man, who, man who's suffering remorse is a man who said, well, what a fool I was. Why am I suffering? Well, because I did that. I shouldn't have done it. I was a fool. But he rarely doesn't hate the sin. He hates the consequences of the sin. If I may so put it, he hates the headache that follows the debauchery and the drunkenness and the vileness because he's ill the next day. He dislikes that. He doesn't like the sin. If he could only have the sin without the consequences, he'd be perfectly happy. That's remorse. And therefore, merely to say that we are sorry is not enough. Repentance is what God demands. And he'll be satisfied with nothing less. And again, we think sometimes that our good intentions and our good professions and our good protestations are enough. But they're not, my friend. I remember an old man putting me right on this point once in the very early days of my ministry. Forgive me for referring to it. We were talking together about a poor fellow who had become an utter absolute slave to drink. And I had been delighted that this man was attending the services in the chapel where I preached. And I was still more delighted when I observed this man weeping during the sermon. And I told this older man, you know, I said, I think that man's going to be converted. Every Sunday night I see tears streaming down his face. My dear friend said the old experienced man to me, I don't want to discourage you. God forbid that I should. But don't assume, he said, that because that man weeps, that he's there for repenting. He said, you will learn, you will discover that men sometimes think that weeping, somehow or another, does duty for repentance. He said, that man is probably saying to himself, I've sunk, I've gone very low, but I've not yet gone beyond feeling. I can still weep because of my sin. And he was comforting himself by weeping because of his sin. But he still kept on with his sin. And in that particular case, alas, the old man was perfectly right. The poor fellow went to a drunkard's grave. Ah, it's true of all of us. We'll put our good intentions, our good emotions, our good reactions... We think we deceive God with these things. 
But oh, the folly of it all. Well, I mustn't keep you. What does man need to know? Well, he just needs to know the things that are mentioned here. God, my dear friend, knows all about us. I search the heart, I try the reins. Neither is there anything, any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This eternal, everlasting God, the Lord, who made the world out of nothing, who said, let there be light, and there was light. He is everywhere, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he is eternal, and everything that you and I have ever done or said or thought are all known to him and open before him. He's got books, he keeps them in the books of his remembrance. Go to the 20th chapter of Revelations, if you like, and there you'll see it symbolically. The great day of judgment has arrived, and the books are brought forward, and the books are opened, and all you have done, and I've done, and all I've said and thought and imagined, they're all there, every one of them. And we are going on to face these things. That's the message of the Bible, not my message. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. My dear friend, God knows everything. Whither shall I flee from his presence? You cannot. Take the wings of the morning and go to heaven. Go down into the depths. Make your seat in hell. You can't get away from him. He's everywhere and encompasseth everything. And he knows all. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who says that every man shall have to give an account of every idle word that he's spoken. Not only your deliberate statements and actions, every idle word, every joke, every unworthy thought, all of them, they'll all face you. It's the Son of God who said that. Yes, the other thing we need to know is this, that we shall all be judged according to what we actually are in our hearts and not what we appear amongst men to be. I search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Did you notice how it was put there again in that fourth chapter of Hebrews? The word of God is quick and powerful and like a two-edged sword that is able to divide even to the separating of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And listen, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your intentions, your desires, God sees them all. And he'll judge you by the state of your heart. This thing that you can't discern, he does deserve. And if you want to know what that means, go to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and Christ puts it like this. You have heard it has been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, That any man who saith of his brother, Thou fool, is in danger of hell fire. It isn't only the act of committing murder. It's that feeling of murder in your heart against another person. That person whom you're jealous of or whom you hate. If only... You've murdered him already in your spirit and in your heart and God knows it and it counts as murder in his presence, says the Lord Jesus Christ. A man stands before God and he says, Whatever I am, I've never been guilty of adultery. The Lord Jesus Christ replies and says, Whosoever looketh upon or after a woman to lust hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
He's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And it'll be no use you standing up in the day of judgment and saying, I've never done this, I've never done that, I've never done the other. Out of your own mouth you'll be convicted. The books will be produced. Your thoughts, your desires, your intents and intentions, the things you've fondled and played with, the hours you've spent in reading these filthy divorce cases in the evening newspaper, because you've lusted and have enjoyed it, it'll all be there as evidence. God knows all about it. We shall be judged according to the state of our hearts, not according to our words, not according to our pretensions, nor professions, nor the good we've done. God looketh upon the heart. And lastly, we need to know this, that the judgment will be an absolutely just one. I search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. That's the thing that makes it so terrifying and alarming. We shall not be judged according to opinions, we'll be judged according to our own records. We'll be judged according to facts. The judge of all the world is righteous and just and holy and true. My dear friend, you'll stand there and what will happen is that your own record will be read out to you. The books will be opened and there it will all come out. All you've done and been and thought and said and imagined and hoped and desired, it will all come out. The state of your heart. And there will be no reply. There is no reply. There will be no defense. The facts will speak for themselves. You may say, as we are told people will say, when didn't I do this, that, and the other? And there will be an absolute immediate reply. What about it? There's the truth. The simple truth. We are all under God. We shall all stand before Him. And there is no one who can stand on such an occasion. In and of Himself, we are all undone. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all wretched, vile, foul sinners. Don't you see, my friend, that it is only when you realize the truth like that that you begin to see why it was that the Son of God ever came into this world. We should all be damned but for him. But thank God he came because of that. He came to deal with that very problem. He came to bear these horrible, vile, foul sins of ours and he's borne their punishment. Oh, God is a righteous judge and God cannot wink at sin. God cannot pretend that he hasn't seen it. The wrath of God is revealed already against all sin and all unrighteousness. God being God must deal with sin and he has dealt with sin. God forgives those and only those who realize that they are sinners without any plea but who realize and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has stood in their place and has borne their sins and their punishment in order that God might forgive them. They alone are Christians who are thus reconciled to God and who realize the need of a new heart, 
and of a new life and of power and of strength. They alone are Christians who have come to the end of themselves, who having seen the truth about themselves say, what can I do? I am helpless, I am hopeless. And then see that it's all in him and who fly to him and who cling to him and who rely upon him, who forsake their sin, who hate their sin and who trust to him to hold them and to cleanse them and ultimately to present them faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. My dear friend, what of you? Have you realized you've got to meet God in judgment? The God who knows all about you in every thought as well as action. Oh, if you realize it, I needn't plead with you, I needn't exhort you. If you realize the awful day, you will fly to Christ and cast yourself at his feet and say to him, even with your last gasp, perhaps. Hide me. Oh, my Savior, hide. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and wash me, save me, ere I die. And if you do that, it's my privilege to tell you, he'll not refuse you. Be as black as hell, it doesn't matter. If you feel your need of him, he will receive you. And you will know you are pardoned and reconciled and restored and forgiven and renewed, and relying upon the strength which the strong Son of God alone can supply, you will be increasingly delivered from the thraldom of sin and Satan. Make no delay. The day, the day of judgment is coming. Flee for sin and become eternally saved.